You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. My body jolted so hard I bounced on the desk. I put my hand on the side of my neck. No pulse. I pinched my palm. No pain. Try again. Mookie turned the dial to a higher setting and zapped me again. Nothing happened, except the lights in the gym dimmed for a second. After the third try, Mookie sniffed and said, I smell bacon. I looked down at my chest. Wisps of smoke rose from around the paddles. I pushed Mookie's hands away and slid off the desk. That's enough. There were dark marks from the paddles. I brushed at them and little bits of charred skin peeled off. I was almost glad I couldn't feel anything. I put my shirt on as the first bell rang. Come on, we don't want to be late. What do you care, Mookie asked. You're dead. You can probably get out of school, or at least out of gym. David Lubar's first novel, Hidden Talents, won an ALA Best Book for Young Adults Award. He's written True Talents, Flip, and four collections of weenie stories, In the Land of the Lawn Weenies, Invasion of the Road Weenies, The Curse of the Campfire Weenies, and The Battle of the Red Hot Pepper Weenies. His new book is My Rotten Life. Thank you for joining me, David. I'm thrilled to be here. David, this is a wonderful evocation of zombies for eight years old. That's a counterintuitive genre choice, for me at least. I think of zombies, and I think of you know, R-rated movies with uh, people consuming ropey intestines, uh, and that horrified Roger Ebert back in 1968. When made you chose to write a, a, a book for beginning readers about zombies? I wanted to horrify Roger Ebert's ghost. Actually, I was at a Chinese restaurant on my 30th wedding anniversary with my wife and my publisher because I had been asked to speak in New York at a very important conference on my anniversary. So I suggested to my wife we have our anniversary in New York. And out of gratitude for my publisher buying, getting us a hotel room, I said, let's all go to dinner. And during that dinner in a Chinese restaurant, I don't know which of the which of the items it was, my publisher suddenly said, you know, zombies are going to be popular. This was two years ago. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's cool. I'm not really big on taking ideas from others, but my publisher is really smart. So I filed it in the back of my head. Maybe zombies. The next day in the shower, I had this image of a kid plucking out his eye and rolling it down a hall so he could spy on someone. And it hit me, wow, a kid who is a zombie could be a spy. And I went off on that tangent of thinking not just of zombie, but also spy. But I still haven't answered your question. Yes, zombies are horrible, terrible, brain-eating things, but that's the second iteration of zombies. Zombies were first a Haitian myth, and then film producers said, hey, let's make them horrible, brain-eating creatures. And then I came along and said, I'm going to do what I want. He's going to be half dead. I'm going to call him a zombie, but even he and his friends are going to argue about whether he is or not. But I still like the whole idea of telling the story from the viewpoint of the kid who is the dead character. I think this is a really interesting way of building sympathy for the dead, so to speak. <laughs> Absolutely. the uh, you You want a sympathetic main character, which actually gives me a really big problem. And if he was truly dead to the degree he seems to be, and he may not be, things would start to rot and fall off. But I know from my own reading experiences that as soon as a character loses a body part, I feel maimed myself because we self-identify. We are 
the character. I believe it was in Stephen King's Dark Tower in the very first story, the character loses a finger, and I suddenly felt a separation. So the first thing I figured was if Nathan loses something, he has he's invented by accident. He's discovered that he mixes rooting powder with Elmer's glue, which of course has milk for strong bones. He can put the piece back on and it will reattach. I am working with the other issues about what is going to happen as parts of his body become less and less viable. And I do have solutions in mind. Did I answer that one or did I ramble again? No, that was fine. Um, one of the things that really interests me about this book is the way it opens. Um, we It opens with somebody's heart being ripped out, stomped on, and jumped up and down on by, you know, a, a, a fifth grade girl. And I thought, well, you know, this suggests that zombies exist in many different ways. And, and you know, a lot of people out there might be zombies. Talk about that. Just not necessarily the living dead, but some of us are probably worse than the living dead. School is school is rough. Actually, middle school is the hardest. This is set in elementary school, but people get stepped on. Stand in a high school or a middle school or an elementary school cafeteria and watch the kids. It can, it can break your heart and stomp on it. Kids, A kid will walk in, look around. He'll try to approach somewhere to sit. I... There was a young lady I ran into during this week. I was at a library speaking, and she had me sign a book, and she was very quiet, but then she stood off to the side. And the whole time I was talking to everyone else, she stood there, and finally when every other person had left, she came back to me, and I said, you're a writer, aren't you? Because I know that, look, there are these young people who are so passionate about writing that they have to ask you questions, which is, I love that, but also some of them are so shy. And I kind of got it out of her a bit, a bit at a time. What do you like to write? And she kept saying to me, your your books are so seem so effortless, and my writing doesn't seem that way. And I explained to her that it is hours and days and weeks, sometimes sitting with a thesaurus for half an hour to make one word choice, that makes it seem effortless. But if she loved it and had the passion, she could do this. And the most important thing I told her was the very fact that she could tell that my writing was effortless meant she had the ear. I told her, you have the gift. If you can see your writing is different from mine, you have the skill to make that effortless writing. And it just, it felt so good as she left because I felt I had done what I should in that in that interaction. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about Nathan because he's an interesting character. One of the things I like about this book is the way you build the character kind of in the background. You tell us details that... In, a, in an adult novel or, or, or to our adult perceptions would be a, kind of heartbreaking uh, to, about this kid. He's He is one of the many second-besters, and we'll discuss the second-besters more in more detail. Uh, but um, he's he's a premium with the asthma, and I think that's really interesting the way you, you bring that up. Well, that was one of the things that developed as the story was coming along because when he became a zombie, he no longer had to breathe. And my editor and I discussed this some, and I had thought about illnesses, and uh, she suggested asthma, which actually I have experience with because I have asthma. And it just struck me that what a great way to add depth by having the things that you would think would be the things that would strike you as bad, like no longer breathing, as possibly good or wonderful. He can't breathe. He no longer has to carry an inhaler. He he can't sleep. He can play video games, but. You know, as far as as far as the heartbreaking, we see kids all the time that just do amazingly 
tough things, kids who do chemotherapy, kids, and if, you know, much less tragic than that, the kid who has no friends. And it's a tough time, but sometimes those are the strongest kids. Sometimes those are the kids who end up leading us or discovering something or cowering in a corner writing novels. Now, um, Nathan becomes a, a zombie in a rather unusual manner. This is, in some ways, a, a science fiction novel. Um, so tell us about uh, deciding to, you know, how you came about this method of creating zombies. This is an interesting method. Well, my true confession here is that I just made it up as I went along. I started out knowing one thing. My main character was somehow going to become a zombie. And I started writing a scene, and I, and the next, my next thought was, he's going to have such a terrible day that he's going to wish he didn't feel anything, which gives me a little bit of irony. And as I was writing those scenes and thinking about it and casting the characters... I like to say that the answers to a writer's problems are all, almost always in things he has already written. So I had this little young lady, Abigail, at another table and thought, what, and she doesn't speak to anyone and everyone thinks she's weird. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if Abigail has an uncle who's working on a formula to erase bad feelings? So that got me launched into the direction of the Hurt Be Gone formula. I could have gone to, in a fantasy, I could have made this a fantasy book in which there's some sort of magic, but I thought science would be great. I love science, and I really dive into science. And in the second, or I believe the third book, Nathan has to go to a doctor's appointment. So Abigail, who, Abigail, who's actually a science genius, rigs up things like an exothermic reaction that he can he can put this, these chemicals in his mouth and create heat. And I get the fun of explaining some things about chemistry to the reader. That's really fascinating. Now, the other thing that you kind of bring home at first is that we really live in an environment where, where zombies are really common for, for little kids. There's video games. There's movies. And, and as I was saying before, sometimes you see people and you think, well, they're not that much different from zombies, are they? You're right. It is, it is pervasive. And I guess one thing that allows it to be more pervasive is the zombie is very loosely defined like the witch. In other words, you don't see a whole lot of unicorns because a unicorn is very specific, but a witch could be anything from a Wiccan to the gingerbread house lady. The same with the zombie. You get up you get up without enough sleep, and what do you say? I'm a zombie today. Um, <clears throat> Fats Waller wrote a song called, coincidentally, I didn't realize this, Abercrombie had a zombie about a man who had a, a zombie cocktail, and hilarity ensued. So... It is all around, and the kids see it all around. The kids kids see everything nowadays. Um, I have no social comment on whether that's good or bad, being one of the creators of some of the things they see. One of the things that, that, that interests me, too, is this idea of wishing for no feelings. Could, could you uh, talk about that a bit more? Because I, there are many different kinds of pain, and, and Nathan becomes immune to all those different kinds of pains, but the most painful kind of pain and isn't physical at all. Absolutely. Again, a great irony. Irony is my favorite micronutrient. Nathan wishes to no longer have feelings. The mental anguish, which is part of his everyday life as he is snubbed and just <clears throat> not recognized and not appreciated. And 
the formula that, get, that gets splashed on him instead removes all physical feelings. He has no, he doesn't feel pain. He has no autonomous nervous system, but he still has a heart that can be broken. So he is in some ways even worse off, but magically through the miracle of fiction, good things start happening to him because he's dead. Now, um, tell us a little bit about this idea of the second besters, because I think this is a, a, a great, you know, a pervasive, uh, you know, way, early way of social organization, and it lasts all through our lives in some ways. Well, we always, in school, and I guess in the office and at the gym and everywhere, we categorize people almost like a bell curve, and at the far ends, there's the best and the worst, like... He's the best singer in the class. She's the best artist. He's the heaviest kid. He's the thinnest kid. And then if you're second, it's like being Salieri. I actually once thought it would be great to write a book called The Salieri Syndrome about a kid who is second at everything and it's just tearing him up. And I don't know whether it would be a comedy or he would go psychotic. But I love this idea of all these kids who, because they're the, almost the best or almost the worst, they have no notoriety and they have nothing distinguishing and they just clump together. And they're also, and I just realized this, or maybe I had it in the book, but it hit me now. They're the second lowest table in the cafeteria because they're the doomed who are below the second besters, the, the snail girl who carries everything snail, snail lunchbox, snail hair clips, Abigail, um, Ferdinand, Zwieler, who they call Ferdinand because he's afraid of everything. So... The second vesters are a concept that I, I just felt really had a lot of potential for elementary school. It also strikes me, too, that as these are the main characters in your book, these are also the people in school who are more likely to be reading a book. That is You're an, speaking to your audience. That is an excellent point because the outcast kid is much more likely to have a book for a friend. Mm -hmm. I won't bother giving the old Groucho Marx quote, because every single one of your listeners knows it f far better than I do. But um, it's, the, it's the outcasts usually who are ha hanging out in the library. I spend a lot of time visiting schools, and quite often when I come to the school, the librarian will be hosting the visit, so I'll be in the library before school, and I see the most awesome, amazing kids, because they're the ones who come into the library instead of homeroom before school starts, and they're the library helpers. And sometimes the librarian is the only adult who really nurtures these kids and is the bright point in their lives. But you're absolutely right. I'm speaking to my characters. But I do have to say, the because, again, I go to a lot of schools, the variety of kids who read is staggering. And you'll look at the kid with the football shirt who's who's obviously the quarterback and he's popular, and he's got a stack of books. So it's... I'm happy to report that reading is thriving and alive and well in our schools. Due partially to children's... Children seem naturally inclined to read kind of really grisly monsters. We're, we're all attracted to zombies. Could you tell me, why do you think zombies are so popular, both in school and in our general culture? I'm probably going to babble out two or three completely incoherent wild guesses because vampires, it's obvious. There's the whole mystique and the whole handsomeness of them and the powers. I don't think anybody would want to be a zombie, and um, 
I think maybe the only appeal might be the taboo of death. So again, we don't talk about death. We don't talk about feces. So if you write a book, if you have Mr. Henke bouncing around, kids are going to be attracted to it because it's part of the taboo. If you have a dead character walking around, again, maybe it is that taboo aspect. Maybe it's just because, as you said before, zombies are pervasive. We see them in the theaters. We shoot them in our video games. So we know zombies. And, hey, cool, zombie, I like that. Or maybe none of the above. I would love to hear your theory. Well, one thing that strikes me is that zombies are um, they're a reflection of our fear of the mindless mass. The zombies are often portrayed as not having any, you know, not having any intelligence, just being essentially killing or eating machines. And that's one of the things I like about your zombie is that he's kind of just like us. He's just that he's dead. So, but. Um, I think one of the things that you do well in this book is kind of go back and forth that, you know, the way, for example, the the way the popular kids act, they act more like zombies than Nathan. They're in their blind following of, of, the, of the popular that's, girls and guys. That's an excellent point and one I wish I had exploited more as, as I was writing the first book, but I can always steal your idea for book four or book five. And as Nathan can start observing... As a matter of fact, I'm definitely going to do that at some point. He's going to observe a bunch of people and mull upon the reality that they are much deader than he is. <laughs> um, uh, this book, too, contains all sorts of horror writing. You do lots of uh, great kind of horror stuff, but for kids, you bring it down to a level where kids can talk about it. Well, for example, you describe uh, one of the characters. He has veins like blue worms. And so could you talk about taking these kind of slightly horrific visions and tweaking them so they're entertaining and acceptable for kids and also kind of funny, too? I mean, I, it's it's what I do. I just um, I think in a sense, everything I do boils down to one skill, which is problem solving. I used to design video games, which involve programming and 90 percent of programming is fixing your mistakes. Writing is really problem-solving. So I'm describing this bulging, pulsing vein in the gym teacher's head, and I have to think, what is it like? And I'm thinking red, blue, and that kind of leads me to gummy worms. So it was sort of easy to make that connection. Part of it is possibly because my mind is far too noisy and far too active, and the one thing I've learned to do is grab as much of the debris as it is flying past me. So in a sense, I I do it without too much thought because I've been doing it so much. This is, this is my 19th book and um, that has been published, which means I've probably written 30 or more books, some of which I wrote when I was starting and sh- some of which should not have ever, not have been, well, I shouldn't say not have ever been published. Those that have been published should, but many of the ones that haven't been published belong Unpublished, and I've also written at least 200 short stories, so I'm doing it all the time. It's just the way the mind works. Now, uh, one of the things that that is is interesting too about this is that um, it's fun if you're reading. It's I think it's kind of fun to read about somebody whose life is worse than <laughs> yours. Absolutely, the um, I think I think it is. Schadenfreude elongated to 140 pages of reading because, yeah, boy, I might have forgotten my homework 
and fallen in a mud puddle, but Nathan's dead. So I'm better off than he is. A lot of times I, I'm constantly in a car going to different schools and things, and I'll, I'll be on the highway in a horrible, horrible backup of slow-moving traffic, and I'll just think to myself, they do it every day. I'm in different traffic every day, so I'm still stuck, but there, there is that little feeling. So yeah, they, the kids get to read about someone who has experienced something far beyond anything that could happen to them. None of my readers is ever going to be like Nathan, so... We hope. Right. Now, uh, one th- something else that I find really interesting about this novel is that... Um, you this idea of exploring the the world zombies are usually seen you know as ex- an external threat so writing it from the inside is really interesting is a is a really interesting idea and what i what i like is the way that it gradual you gradually work us in this novel towards this kind of realization as nathan becomes nathan dies Fairly slowly yes. over the course of this novel, <laughs> talk about plotting that using a, a a long death as a plot. Well, <clears throat> I had it happen that way for several reasons. One was I needed him to have a possibility of finding a cure, but I also needed there to be a possibility that the cure wouldn't take. So, by having the death move slowly over his body. Downward, it begins, he's splashed in the chest with the hurt be gone, having it move, and it will not be final until it covers him from head to toe. That gives me the opportunity to do the things I needed for plot. So a lot of what I did, I did because of the necessities of plot. I am first and foremost above anything an entertainer, which means my stories always have a plot and a story. When I was in college, I wrote plotless fiction because that's what you do. But my story has a plot, and the plot drives what happens. It has to all work. It has to be effortless, as that young lady said, and also seamless. But first comes story for me, and in this, the story dictated the slow death. But happily, having now had this slowly encroaching death, it gave me the opportunity for him to experience unusual things, like he can still feel tired feet, but he feels nothing in his head. So luckily for me, a lot of times... The things you come up with just expand the wealth and richness of, of the world. Another thing that became really wonderful for me was I got to think about, again, because I need plot and story, I got to think about all the things that are the consequences of this. For example, obviously he doesn't feel pain, he doesn't breathe, so he can go underwater, but subtler things occurred to me as I needed to find other powers and liabilities because he doesn't have blood rushing through his head he hears slightly better than we do. We have a, a, a murmur of blood that we don't hear. Because he doesn't sleep, of course, he can stay up and play games. But also, because he doesn't sleep, he has eight more hours or ten more hours for his mind to think. So there are so many possible good and bad things about what's happened to him that I have a rich well to go into to find my plots. Um. This book is also very funny, in in a in a dark manner. Um, could you talk about uh, writing this kind of uh, dark humor, so that it's still age appropriate, um, but it's funny. I have always loved horror and humor, and they're the same thing. Again, the Schadenfreude. 
there are two aspects. I'm so happy it didn't happen to me. That can be a pie in the face or it can be a spiked ball. And also the unexpected. You you don't scream when you step on a rug. You scream when you step on a severed hand or you laugh when you step on a banana. So humor and horror just mingle in my mind. And I had a very twisted upbringing, not in the familial sense, but in my chosen entertainment. I loved Charles Adams. The cartoons of Charles Adams are one one of my fondest childhood memories. I guess the New Yorker was lying around or something. I also loved Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. My my short stories have at times been called Twilight Zone for kids because I love the subtler endings, but I love the weirdness of Charles Adams. But with Charles Adams, one of the key things is he's bizarre, but you have to think. It's almost like an excluded middle. You look, you see something, you see something else, and you say, oh yeah, the ski tracks go on either side of the tree. How did that happen? So I had Charles Adams, I had Rod Serling, and I had Gene Shepard, who I listened to when I was a kid on my transistor radio, and he told stories. And that was one of the many things that just made me love the humor. So I had the humor of Gene Shepard and Charles Adams in the darkness, and my love of the early monster movies, Frankenstein, Dracula, the original movies before things got very icky and obvious. One of the things, I, you make this observation here, there's a lot of death in this book, but it's all kind of funny and lighthearted. And I think that's it's an interesting perception that there's so much death to perceive in the world. For example, all the death row plants of his in his mother's house, uh, the, all, the, all the, the house plants. Um, this is, I think, a, unfortunately very common. <laughs> to talk about, you know, just the looking at, at death everywhere in, in, in a variety of guises and formats. It's not like, you know, we think of death and it's we think of, you know, a big event, a funeral, um, you know, maybe a traffic accident or somebody in a hospital who dies. And not just the constant immersion in death that we see all the time. You're... You, I think you covered it really well. It's it's all around us. Uh, Nathan's mom loves plants but doesn't have time to water them, and so they die, and he tongue-in-cheek calls it death row, um, which I think I got from real life at one point when we weren't taking care of our plants very well. But death, the cells die, pets die, characters die in any book that wins an award. Um, actually, I jokingly at one point when I was talking to a library conference, I said... Um, I'm about to launch on a five-book series about a kid who becomes a zombie. In other words, I've decided not to try for a Newberry for a while. (laughs) Um, Now, uh, one of the things that's really important about a book about zombies is is the the rules. When when you set up this idea of how he becomes a zombie, you know, we so uh, take us through the rules. what are the rules of, of Nathan's life as a zombie, and how did you discover them? I mean, did you just did you make them up as you were writing them? Uh, you know, it's really great you mentioned rules because I learned the hard way a long time ago that the first thing you have to do is figure out the rules of the magic. And even when it's science fiction, I call it magic because there are certain things that are different. Years ago, I wrote a story about a girl who was a witch, and it was I was close to the end when I realized I was lazy. I hadn't worked out the actual power, so I started making lists when they, when they, when I started writing the book, and I wrote down good things about being a zombie, bad things about being a zombie, and the rules, for example, good things, no muscle fatigue, no trembling, 
no breathing, no physical pain. He can win staring contests, which is really good in school. He can't be poisoned or drugged. He doesn't need sleep. Wild animals won't fear him because they don't sense him as living. He can avoid detection by infrared devices. People don't sense his presence when, they stare, when he stares at the back of their neck. He can look in two different directions at once because his eyes aren't forced to move together. And as I mentioned before, his hearing is acute. On the other hand, bad things, he might creep people out by not blinking. He's slowly rotting. He doesn't heal. He's starting to smell. If he gets buried alive, he's there forever, which is a pretty horrifying Edgar Allan Poe kind of thought. He's not going to grow any bigger. He has dry skin. He can't sleep. He has a numb sense of taste and smell. And domestic animals go wild in his presence. And as, as far as rules beyond that, the basic idea is his autonomous nervous system doesn't work. So I have to be really careful about never having him tremble. I have to make sure he doesn't feel things. He's not going to marvel about the wonderful silk brocade that he has touched. So there are a lot of rules, and I have to keep it straight. And I'm sure I have violated it at some point. And some genius fourth grader is going to write to me that on page 47 of book three, Nathan flinches. And sure enough, I'm sure on page 47 of book three, there's going to be something like that. But again, rules are so important to the writer and to the reader. The rules help us find the story, and the rules make the reader feel it's a consistent fantasy. If the rules change, you've lost the willing suspension of disbelief. It's a, it's a lot. They also, it's just fun, too. Now, um, your rules for being a zombie are very different from any other rules for being a zombie. Did you think about some of the other rules? I mean, we have, you know, some... The the zombie rule of thumb I know is cut off their head if they're coming at you. <laughs> um, they want to eat your brains, or um, you know they don't shooting them doesn't do a whole lot of good. Uh, could you talk about you know did you think about some of the other the more adult versions of zombies when you were creating oh, I, Nathan? Oh, absolutely. And let me let me address a couple of those in sequence because they touch on different aspects. Cut their heads off when they approach. That is for someone who knows. He's being approached by a zombie, which is one of Nathan's very good reasons for keeping it a secret. Nathan pictures, every time there's a possibility that the secret will get out, Nathan pictures the way people react to zombies. They scream and run. They kill them. So he doesn't want that to happen. Now, as far as eating brains, that's frowned upon in fifth grade. So I decided I was not going to let him do that. But more importantly, the traditional zombie is a mindless creature staggering around. Since I decided that I was going to do a first-person narrative book, Nathan couldn't be mindless. Nathan had to have thoughts. I, there was, I'm sure some brilliant writer could write a narrative from a mindless person. Um, well, Dalton Trumbo came close. He took away all the senses and Johnny got his gun, but the character still thinks. I don't think it would be a very interesting book if the character had no thoughts and was narrating I think I guess we'd be down to grunts, but I could try that for book six. Just just args and grunts because by then kids will buy it no matter what. So book six will open with and end with. Thank you for giving me that idea. Uh, um, one of the things that's interesting about this is that uh, being awake is part of being dead, which is somewhat counterintuitive because death is supposed to be like sleep. 
So talk about this, playing with some of these paradoxes um, just for fun and in, in, in a way that's going to entertain you know, your fifth grade audience, but in a way that entertains you as a writer as well. Well, I, I'm loving the whole sleepless thing because, again, because of story, that gives me a huge area of potential because Nathan has eight or ten hours more, assuming an elementary school kid gets ten hours of sleep or six – he has he has hours more than the rest of us to do something, and he needs to find something. So at some point, I could actually have a whole book based on him searching for the perfect way to spend the night. One of the first things that came to mind was that he could become an expert on something by reading. But since Abigail is the resident genius, I didn't want him to encroach on her turf. And I think he even thinks about that as an as an issue. But you're absolutely right. The sleep of death in Nathan's case, is the sleeplessness of death. And I almost even had an idea of calling a book Insomnia because of this. <laughs> I like that. Um, let's talk about some of the other characters uh, because he's not the only person who knows he's dead. There, there's Abigail and, and uh, Mookie. Tell us a little bit more about creating the character of Abigail. I Abigail is a smart girl. I... I, I produced half of the genetic material for a very smart girl who's now 24 years old and teaching English uh, after doing two years with Teach for America and getting her master's. So I adore smart girls. I run into them all the time. And so I'm always unnaturally driven to these smart little characters. And also, I love facts. I love information. So by having someone who's smart, I can share information with the readers, not in the sense that I am going to teach you about exothermic reactions, but in the sense that this is really cool. You know, some chemicals produce heat. So, but Abigail, all of my characters, again, some writers sit down with a sketchbook and they build their characters. I start with clay that isn't even vaguely human shaped. It's a block of clay with a name. And then the characters start doing things as I write. And a character might just do something I had no intention of happening, and I realized this is part of the character's personality. In Abigail's case, right as I was going along, she, it was early on I realized she had to be a scientific genius. Um, initially, I thought her uncle would be the genius, but I thought it would be so much more fun since her uncle was not going to stick around if she was the genius character. And then Mookie, who I guess you would be asking about next, mm -hmm. he showed up, and he is an, a perfect example of the supporting characters who almost take over because he's just a lovable goofball. I have in uh, my novel Hidden Talents, I have five supporting characters, and there's this one that I would never guess the girls would like, but everywhere when I go to schools, especially in middle school, the girls say, who's your favorite character? And, and then they kind of giggle and say, we love Torchy, because Torchy, well, he starts fires, that's the name, but um, he's, he's just kind of naive and likable and sweaty. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> when you one of the things that I wanted to talk about too is that the the manner in which you kind of casually drop, you know, some somewhat adult concepts in here. You know that that he's a premature child, that he's a premature baby, um, that asthma and you know the uh, in tran in you know in transient kind of transient nature of uh, Abigail's uncles. You know, these are kind of you know you describe. You'd actually do a, a good job for a book in which the main character is the living dead to talk about realistic family dynamics and school dynamics. So talk about 
you know, creating these kind of realistic interpersonal relationships that are f- kind of fun in the midst of a book where the main character is uh, dead. Well, the first thing I, I've, I've learned is kids will always rise to meet your expectations. And I just, the only difference between a book I write for kids and anything I'd write for older teens or even adults is I would not use certain vocabulary unless the word is defined within a sentence. I, don't, I use a lot of large vocabulary words, but I always make sure that context works because that's how they learn words. And I also am very careful about cultural references. Um, for example, I might mention President Kennedy, but I wouldn't mention Alger Hiss because none of my younger readers would have a clue who Alger Hiss was. But I might throw things in for my fun. So I I don't worry about the concepts. If kids aren't ready for a concept, they don't notice it. They self-censor. And I think the use of them, the use of the real world, anchors the book. My In my short stories, in many of the short stories, there's just one weird thing, like a cell phone that picks up conversations from from the future, and they start getting closer and closer to the present, or a sword that, if you pick it up, makes you want to use it. But the rest of the world is completely realistic. If Nathan was a zombie and his mother was a werewolf and his best friend could levitate, who cares? It's not it's not compelling, but here here is this kid who is a walking dead kid, and he's in a normal environment. But as we see, there is no such thing as normal. He has, um, Abigail has an uncle who's on the lam from the police. Um, Mookie's mother, as we learn in subsequent stories, is constantly winning radio contests and other contests, but she's always winning completely useless things like a year's supply of aquarium gravel. So... There's an absurdist element running through, but always woven through the world. So I guess the woof is normal and the warp is warped, if I may stretch a weaving analogy or metaphor or simile or dachshund or something. <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting, too, the, you know, when you... Uh, you actually talk about some kind of sophisticated uh, concepts in here, you know, the biochemical nature uh, of our emotions. And, and, you know, this is for, for again, for younger readers. So I, I think that it's it interests me that we live in a world where um, what was once science fiction is now kind of the, the part, you know, taken for granted, as it were. That That's an excellent point. I... I'm struck over and over by how every single writer has to do what only science fiction writers once did. In the 60s, science fiction writers had to know what the 90s would be like. But in the aughts or whatever, we have to know what next year is going to be like because if I mention a technology in my story, for example, I have stories that are only seven or eight years old where I refer to videotapes. And as I was rereading one of those, I thought, oh, dear. And now I don't say CDs or DVDs. I'll say movies or music. So all of us have to predict the future as much as possible, and we're all going to fail. Uh, Ten years ago, you could strand your characters by locking them out of the mall. Now they all have cell phones. Every, everything changes, but I think if I mention a scientific concept, 
I have I have a really good out because since Abigail is a scientific genius and since whenever she starts talking about these things, Nathan and Mookie always exchange a look and mutter, do you know what she's talking about? No, I have no idea. I have a complete out. If the reader gets it, great. If the reader researches it and says to mom, you know, what what's an what's what's a dendrite or whatever I might mention, wonderful. If the reader says, oh, okay, Abigail's babbling, I don't get it. That's fine. It ha- it's not going to impact the enjoyment of the story. Now, this brings up another thought to my mind that when you're writing a story like this, um, where there's some science fiction or and some science in it, um, you're doing research now. Research is a time-honored part of writing, but most writers don't have to kind of like filter the results of their research to match the level of their readers. That is, you might go to read the Journal of American Medical Association. You might read some really sophisticated stuff to to get an idea of what you're talking about. But then when you write it, you have to kind of like filter that, you know, ratchet it back so that it matches, you know, both the tone of your characters and the... the uh, you know, comprehension level of your readers. Could you talk about that process? It can't be easy. It actually, it's actually easier for me. <clears throat> if I were to be doing this for the adult science fiction crowd and I had a character mix two chemicals inside of a hollowed out gumball so when the other character bit on it to create heat in his mouth so his temperature would read 98.6, kids are like, oh, cool. The adults would be, wait a minute, you have 3.7 cubic centimeters of the one chemical, two of the other, let me do the equation, according to the atomic weight, you would get not 98.6, but 93, it wouldn't work. So in a sense, even though I do, I care about, I was a science geek when I was a kid. I love science. I do a lot of research. I can actually skate a little more and get away with things because really, if you think about it, if Nathan doesn't feel pain, he would be clumsy because he has no sense of touch. If you don't feel pain, you probably also don't feel any sensations. But I gave him a, f- a sense of pressure when he touches things. Because otherwise, he would just be banging into things. So I do the science. I, w- I spent a whole day, not that I meant to, but it's fascinating, trying to figure out why live flesh doesn't rot. And normally, you just put it in Google and Wikipedia tells you. But there are all sorts of things going on because in the current book I'm working on, book four, Nathan is starting to smell. And I needed to figure out, first of all, why is it going on? Why hasn't it happened more quickly? How is he going to fix this? What are the mechanisms? And I have some wonderful things tied in again because he stopped taking his asthma medicine when he no longer needed it. So I, I started looking at, are there any asthma medicines on the market that can interact with bacteria in a, in a way? And it just it goes on and on in this wonderful spiral. I love it. I just love doing the research, and again, I'm not afraid of presenting the science at a level that might be just within the reach of my readers or possibly slightly beyond because whatever they don't grasp doesn't hurt the story. Now, when you started this book, you knew you were going to write a series, right? Yes, I was supposed to write a three-book series, Mm -hmm. but... When my publisher saw the first book, they decided, let's make it a five-book series. They got very enthusiastic. They've done a, um, an amazing amount of support behind it. They had a great cover. They made door hangers, posters. Everywhere I go, all the kids get posters. That's, that's publisher love. 
And so at this point, it's going to be a five-book series. Did you think about, you know, plotting out, you know, the, the what's going to happen to your zombie over five books? That seems like it might be kind of a challenge. Unlike the um, producers of Lost, I'm willing to admit that I don't have a complete roadmap. I um, have an idea. I have all sorts of thoughts. And again, I have to face the question, do I end book five with a concise, conclusive ending that is complete, or do I leave it open for other adventures? Does he change in some fashion? Is book five no different from book four? And all of that has to be decided. But as I'm writing, I'm, I'm trying to sew threads of other things. I drop little mentions of things that might be useful later. I pick things up, but I also feel every book should be self-contained. And if possible, they could be read out of sequence. It's a little harder with this story, but I want a reader to be able to pick up any one of the books. Now, I want to ask you about your, your previous books. Uh, you, you've written four short story collections about uh, the weenies. Tell us about this decision to write about the weenies. Well, I became emperor of the universe of the weenies completely by accident. I had actually written a um, story collection called Kidzilla and Other Tales, and one of the stories in that collection was about a kid who moves to a town where everyone loves their lawns too much, and the kid is afraid his parents will become like that. And I called the story In the Land of the Lawn Weenies because I always jokingly called my friends who like their lawns too much lawn weenies. That book was followed by another book, The Witch's Monkey and Other Tales. Then my publisher had the brilliant idea to combine the books. And when they put them together, creating 35 different stories in one collection, someone said, hey, lawn weenies, that could be fun. So they did a lawn weenie cover. And that might have been the end. But because the book did really well, it it sold very well. My publisher said, and, and again, that's surprising for short story collections because mm. nobody buys stories. My publisher said, let's do another collection. I had 35 more stories to go because I compulsively write stories even though there's no market for it because I love it. And it turns out I made a market. And at the last minute, I said, I want another weenie cover. So I looked at every story, and there was one called Joggers, about those joggers who never smile and must be aliens. So that became the road road weenies. And again, only one story is about weenies. The third one, we like we liked the idea of doing a camping cover. So I had campfire weenies, and that's the annoying adult who goes on the trip who you, the kids beg the parent not to bring, but he comes. And the last one that came out in March, I decided I've made enough fun of adults. Let's take on some kids. And the pepper weenies are two kids who get into a contest to see who can eat the hottest pepper. And they start, okay, with jalapenos and habaneros, but then they move on and on to scotch bonnets, and then the dreaded Indian jute baluka, which is hundreds of thousands of times hotter. Flames shoot out of body parts. It ends badly. And the, the next one, I'll give your listeners a, a preview. I'm probably going to do vampire weenies because it has not escaped my notice that um, some young ladies think vampires are cute and cuddly. And I thought it would be wonderful to have a little kid who tries to warn his sister that vampires are really horrible, smelly, awful, blood-sucking creatures, and she doesn't believe him, and so he gets a vampire to come to their party. And they all die. So that might be the fifth, the fifth title story. But the weenies, I've, I've, I'm just years ago. I said if I could make my living writing short stories, I'd be happy. And through some miracle of good luck, good timing, and I guess good writing, I'm actually, I have a lot of story collections on the shelves. I think over a million uh, of those books have been bought so far. I've been speaking with David Lubar. 
His newest novel is My Rotten Life, Nathan Abercrombie, Accidental Zombie. Thank you for speaking with me, David. It was a true pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.